Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Five lessons in the second chapter. We got to two of them. In the first three verses, he tried pleasure. He called it pleasure. He also described it as mirth. And he described it as wine, luxurious drinking and eating. He tried pleasure. This is the Epicureanism of Epicurus of Greece of the 4th century B.C. It is eat, drink, and be merry. It's to take pleasure. It's to avoid pain and trouble in life as much as possible. That that's the highest goal that man can achieve. And so Solomon tried that. And he came up empty. He said in the first verse, before he could even finish describing it, he said, this also is vanity. This also is worthless emptiness to just aim for pleasure and mirth. And he said of laughter, it's mad. And of mirth, what doeth it? What does it accomplish just to be laughing or enjoying pleasure through life? There are serious matters that need to be dealt with that those things do not help. And so he sought with wine and with wisdom and madness and folly to find out what the purpose of man was for him to do all the days of their life in verse 3. And he could not find it with pleasure. Then he tried things in verses 4 through 11. Everyone over the age of 30 already knows this to a growing extent, that things do not bring pleasure. I mentioned in the last couple of weeks as we looked at the book of Ecclesiastes, the older you get, you realize that when you look at something... In a catalog, it looks perfect. On eBay, it looks perfect. But then when you get it, you quickly find, after you pay for it, of course, before you pay for it, you can't see any flaws. But as soon as you pay for it, you find out what's wrong with it. It doesn't lead to happiness. It's vanity and it's vexation of spirit. Twice in my life, I had cars that I wanted. When I was 16, I had the fastest car in the county. A 1970 GTO with a 455, four-speed, 433 rear end, dual uh, uh, hood induction for Ram Air Pontiac engine. And I was the most miserable 16-year-old on earth because it didn't mean a stinking thing to me and it cost me a whole lot of money. It didn't mean anything to me in the way of satisfying at all. Oh, I would polish it every day. I'd go out there and polish those chrome valve covers and it was beautiful and I kept it very clean. But it didn't make me happy. Every time I turned the thing on, it was costing me more money than I could earn. It cost me half of the car's value per year in insurance. Just think on that for a moment. That was ridiculous. I had to run Sunoco 260 through. It was as close to his airplane fuel that you could buy so that the engine wouldn't knock. I was making about $3 an hour, and it cost me about that to get home. You know, and I only, I'm only telling you that, and I hardly ever talk about such stories from my life. But I want to tell you that I can go back to that point in my life when I should have been happy and I wasn't happy, and there's certain family members that know well about my unhappiness. Now, to get that thing, I had traded in about the fastest motorcycle that could be bought back then, a Kawasaki 500. That didn't make me happy either. Why do you think I traded it in? Right. I traded the motorcycle in. I had badgered my parents for years to be able to get that motorcycle at the age of 16, which was just total... They're not here, so I'm telling on them. They gave in to their extortion-filled son. That motorcycle didn't make me happy. Traded it in for a car, and it didn't make me happy because those things do not make you happy. And any, why, why do you have to go learn the lesson the hard way? Right. Just get yourself some little piece of transportation. It'll get you from A to B, hopefully with good gas mileage these days. And, enjoy, and find other things in life because a car will not make you happy. And young men... 
Any girl that likes you for the car you have is not a girl worth having because character is far more important than your car. If you're out to impress girls with your car, you're going to get the wrong kind of girl. You're, you're aiming totally in the wrong direction. Amen. Character is not measured by car, and except a man with character is going to drive the least car possible in order to put his money elsewhere where it can be much more useful than with a car. Oh, there was another time in my life where I had a Jaguar and I was the most miserable human being that there could be. A man walked up to me one day. He dealt in fine used cars and he said, what would make you happy? What kind of a car? If you could just pick any car you wanted, what would you want? I said, a red, a red Jaguar convertible. One week later, he called me and said, I got it. You want to pick it up? Some of you know a little bit about that. That's exactly how it happened. Oh. Uh, didn't do any good either. Unhappiness, loneliness, dissatisfaction, discontentment. Because without the Lord first, none of those things are ever going to matter. And so when, when you read, I made me great works. He doesn't say in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, I bought me great cars. They didn't have cars back then. He had chariots. And he had a lot of them. He had 1,400. Do you want to see a 1,400 stall garage? Amen. That was Solomon. And let me tell you, when you had six white horses out in front of a chariot that was decked in gold, and, and, the, and the gold work was done by Hiram's men, it was one beautiful sight to behold, but it didn't make Solomon happy either. None of those things don't do it. I made me great works. I built me houses. Those cars cost so much in insurance upkeep. You know, Jaguars are a total piece of junk. Now they're getting better because they were bought out, but Jaguars were just terrible. They were an electrical, electrical nightmare. You could turn your lights on, the back window would go down. You'd put the back window up and the horn would beep. They, they were a nightmare. I'm telling you the truth. Jaguars depreciated faster than any car ever made in the history of the, in the last 30 years because they were such a mechanical nightmare. Well, once you buy something like that, you can't sleep at night because you wonder what's going to go wrong on it tomorrow. And on and it goes. Anybody that, there was a joke. If you own Jaguar, if you own a Jaguar, you need to own two cars. One to drive and one to polish. And you're going to polish the Jaguar and you're going to need something else to drive. Because all of it's vanity. It's vanity and vexation of spirit. And Solomon just listed all these things in lesson number 2, verses 4 through 11, of the things he tried. And he said, I, I looked, verse 11, I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought and on the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. And there was no prophet under the sun. That is the truth. Oh, to learn it so that we can say no to all the advertisements that this world throws at us, all that our neighbors do, all that our colleagues do at work, and all that the lust of our eyes and the pride of life and the lust of the flesh wants to do in our own bodies. Right. If we would just learn the lesson right here, this man tried all that could be tried. He said in verse 9, so I was great. And increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. We're never going to have as much as Solomon had. And yet he already told us the lesson. It's all worthless. Let's get to lesson number three. It's in verses 12 down through 17. Ecclesiastes 2, 12 through 17. And I turn myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do that cometh after the king? Even that which hath been already done. Then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly as far as light excelleth darkness. 
The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. And I myself perceived also that one event happeneth to them all. Then said I in my heart, as it happeneth to the fool, so it happeneth even to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For there is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever. Seeing that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. And how dieth the wise man? As the fool. Therefore I hated life. Because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me. For all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Now this is a concise, brief, powerful book of philosophy. You re- I just read it took about 30 seconds to work our way down from verse 12 to verse 17. And he just blows apart natural wisdom, natural folly, and natural madness. When it says in verse 12, I turn myself to behold wisdom. That is natural wisdom, having the right answers for the questions of life. That is being able to separate between two prostitutes. That's knowing about trees, political matters, and so forth. This is not spiritual wisdom of putting the Lord Jesus Christ in the kingdom of heaven first. That is not what the comparison is in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's natural wisdom to natural madness and natural folly. Human philosophers versus having the wisdom of what is the right answer. I turn myself to behold them. Wisdom, madness, and folly together. For what can the man do that cometh after the king? We will never be able to measure up to him and what he tried, even that which hath been already done. God made this man special in all of his circumstances so that we hopefully, if we could humble ourselves enough to the word of God, would submit that this man had a better view of things, he was more analytical, he could see deeper, think broader, had more money, more power, more of an imagination, was more creative than, any, than, than we could ever be. And we should listen to his lesson. And that's why he says, and he says things like this throughout. As he says in the last half of verse 12, For what can the man do that cometh after the king? What can you or I possibly do to try to measure up to his experimentation with the purpose of life? Look at what he says in 25. For who can eat or who else can hasten hereunto more than I? We can't measure up to Solomon. So the lesson is God's given us the perfect man for writing a book of philosophy. Absolutely perfect. And I'm going to say again. These are the absolute certain final words of truth given from the God of heaven to us for the matter of how to live. You read a book of philosophy, and you are reading a book probably by a dope-smoking, hallucinating imagination man who worships his own imagination, who writes what he thinks. And many of those men end up in insane asylums or under the in, or, or are drug abusers, substance abusers, because they are totally messed up. Right. When they set themselves against God and say they have a philosophy for how to live, and it doesn't include worshiping the God of heaven, God says he will turn them into foolishness. He will blind their depraved hearts. He will rewire their minds. They end up all messed up. You have the word of God. You have the greatest philosopher. Those little men sitting in some little stuffy apartment someplace writing their little books of philosophy can't compare to a king. That's why he wants to tell you over and over, I was king. I was king. I was greater than all the men before me in Jerusalem. I had it all. I had me great works. So I got great. So I was rich. 
He wants you to know all those things. He's the best possible writer of a book of philosophy that there could be. And God inspired him to boot. So that's why he says in the last part of verse 12, For what can the man do that cometh after the king? I compared wisdom, madness, and folly. Verse 13, Then I saw the wisdom excelleth folly, as far as light excelleth darkness. Natural wisdom compared to natural folly is as superior as daylight is to nighttime, as the sun is to the moon, as light is to darkness. He tells us that, but that's only part of the lesson. He just wants to blow folly apart. Wisdom is greater than folly. But then he says this. He's still making his point about the, the, the superiority of wisdom. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. A wise man who has natural wisdom at least can see where he's going, why he's going there, and how he ought to get there. But a fool walketh in darkness. He doesn't know where he's going. He's going to say later in chapter 10, a fool doesn't even know how to get to the city. A fool looks at wise men. A fool looks at successful men and says, I want to be like them. But the Solomon mocks them by saying, they don't even know how to get to town. They can't even get started. And so he says, the wise man has his eyes in his head. He can see where he's going. The fool's walking in darkness. And I myself perceived also, in addition to seeing that wisdom is superior, superior to folly, that natural wisdom is better than being a fool, I perceived also that one event happeneth to them all. They all get the flu. They all have trouble with their kids. They all die. He's, he says, then I said in my heart, verse 15, as it happeneth to the fool, so it happeneth even to me. And why was I then more wise? Then I said in my heart that this also is vanity. Wisdom is better than folly, but even having natural wisdom, this is vanity too. Because there's no difference between me and a fool. We both live to be about 70 years of age. Robbers break into our houses and steal stuff from both of us. We both get the flu. We both put our pants on the same way. And we both die. That's what, he's just reducing fools and wise men to the same level. Right. Verse 16, For there is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever. Seeing that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. And how dieth the wise man as the fool? A couple generations from now, no one's going to remember that I was a wise man any more than they're going to remember that my neighbor was a fool. It's all lost. You say, well, we still remember Solomon. That's because God wrote a book. Everything can be traced back to God that has any value at all. The only reason you know about Solomon is because God wrote a book and put Solomon in it. If God hadn't written the Bible and put Solomon in it, you wouldn't know a thing about Solomon. It's because it's in the Word of God. And so he reduces himself and fools to the same basis that they're going to die and that they are not going to be remembered for anything valuable. Verse 17, what's the conclusion to that? Therefore, I hated life. How in the world can you hate life? Ever been there? Therefore, I hated life. Even King Solomon, with all of his advantages and all of his things and all of his power and all of his riches and all of his wisdom and his ability to experiment with madness and folly, hated life. Therefore, I hated life because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. The more natural wisdom I acquired and the more natural wisdom I applied and the more natural wisdom I analyzed, 
compared to wisdom, to madness and folly. The more I did all of that, the more I realized, yes, wisdom is superior to folly. However, there's no difference between a wise man and a fool. We're both going to end up dying and no one's going to remember either of us. We're just going to be dropped as carcasses into the grave. Natural wisdom by itself is no lasting fulfillment for a human life. And so he hated life. Because even when he was sitting thinking with natural wisdom, he knew he wasn't doing anything that was going to be lasting and that it was all going to go away as soon as he died. He was going to die just like a fool about 70 years of age. Therefore, I hated life. So in verses 12 through 17, we have a lesson that wisdom excels folly, but yet they're both vain. Because even natural wisdom is not the fulfillment for life. There's a higher level of wisdom. There's the wisdom that fears God, keeps His commandments, loves the Lord Jesus Christ, sets its affection on heaven, and is willing to give up the short-term pleasures of this life for something totally different. He's not to that point yet. He's just breaking us down by showing us that just acquiring a whole lot of natural wisdom, and even if it's with God's blessing, is not sufficient to fulfill a human life. Next lesson, verses 18 through 23. Yea, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun, because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. And who knoweth whether he shall be a wise man or a fool? Yet shall he have rule over all my labor, wherein I have labored, and wherein I have showed myself wise under the sun. This is also vanity. Therefore I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is in wisdom, and in knowledge, and in equity. Yet to a man that hath not labored therein, shall he leave it for his portion. This also is vanity and a great evil. For what hath man of all his labor, and of the vexation of his heart, wherein he hath labored under the sun? For all his days are sorrows, and his travail grief. Yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity. Now that is about as hopeless as you can get. Yea, I hated all my labor. The more I thought about all the things that I had done and the great works that I had builded, and the wisdom and understanding and equity that I had applied in governing the affairs of Jerusalem and of all Israel, the more I did that, the more I realized that I'm going to leave everything that I accomplished to some man that isn't going to have those things. And that really torqued me. That is a great evil that I would use my wisdom, my understanding, and my equity to build things, accomplish things, and set this nation up. And then I'm going to give it to a man who has not labored therein. Meaning, who didn't have any wisdom, understanding, or equity. And he's going to have my things as his portion. This is a great evil. Because he doesn't deserve them, and he's not going to use them right. Who knoweth whether he shall be a wise man or a fool, he said in verse 19. Yet he's going to have rule over all my labor. Every vineyard I planted, every orchard I planted, all the trees, all the servants, the servants that were born in my house, they're going to report to a new guy who doesn't have wisdom, understanding, or equity. Isn't that pitiful? They're going to be living in my house, sleeping in my bed, looking at my gold and drinking out of my golden goblets. This is vanity. Therefore, I went about to cause my heart to despair. The more he thought on all these things, they, they brought him to, the, to, to despair. Substance abuse. Angela, 
You work in substance abuse, and here's the explanation for it. Adam, you run into substance abuse all the time. Here's the explanation for it. This is why people abuse substances like alcohol and drugs, because they despair of life. They're looking for some comfort someplace. And you know, you pour, a bo- you pour enough from a bottle down your throat, it will cause your despair to leave <laughs> till you wake up. Because it is despairing to think about life in this way. Look at how graphic the wise man is to us and how concise his point is. And is this true? Did this happen in his own life? The kingdom of Israel was lost. Ten tribes went under Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and only two tribes remained with Rehoboam, and Rehoboam was nothing compared to his father. He was a fool and wasted the nation of Israel. That is why Solomon has told you, I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. In one generation, Rehoboam would have to write, I, Rehoboam, was king over Judah in Jerusalem. Because ten tribes have been lost already. How painful. Right. <coughs> How painful for Solomon. The constant awareness of death brings to mind to a man that everything he accumulates in life is going to be given to someone else. Notice, though, that he's more thorough than that. He says in verse 23, all his days, this is a man who's worked hard to accomplish things and accumulate things. All his days are sorrows. He works so hard. The man who accomplishes a lot gets up early, stays up late, and works hard in between. His days are full of sorrow. His travail is grief. No one around him measures up to the level of intensity and perfection that he brings to the job. A man like Solomon... How many times do you think Solomon looked at someone that worked for him and said, that is one, boy, I'd like to be like him when I grow up. He was constantly frustrated. Now, I'll tell you, Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, was one of his greatest workers he ever had. The Bible tells us that because of his industriousness, he appointed him over all of his workers. And you know, that man ended up taking ten of the tribes of Israel away. But he was one industrious young man. The Bible tells us that about him. But you take a man like Solomon, because we are dealing with a special kind of a man. Remember, we are taking the ultimate case, the ultimate case of a wise man, with ultimate wisdom and ultimate equity and ultimate labor in the pursuit of things. So we're thinking very highly. We're not thinking of average Joe. Average Joe never tries anything compared to this. We're taking a very exalted figure named King Solomon. And this King Solomon was very diligent. He applied his heart to wisdom. He was full of wisdom and understanding and equity. He made him great works. He was great more than all the kings before him. And here's what he describes life being like. All his days are sorrows. I worked so hard to accomplish the things that I accomplished. His travail grief. There is so much grief in trying to get things done, having incompetence working for me. Oh, it's so true. It's so true. Yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. What are you doing at nighttime? Why can't you take rest? You know, a laboring man gets to take rest. There were men that mixed the mortar to hold the, the blocks of marble together for Solomon's houses. They got to sleep that night and they slept soundly. As soon as they hit the bed and had said good night to their wives, 
They slept soundly until the morning. But Solomon couldn't do it. Do you know why? He had to worry about, what are we going to do tomorrow with this particular problem that's come up? What about this? If I don't add this to it, then it's not going to be as, as big and as grand as it should be. On and on the worries go of a man in charge of a great project like this. And so he says, his days are sorrows, his travail grief, yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. He's worried about who's going to have these things when I die. What abuse is going to be made of these things? Solomon is, is trying to communicate to us. How many of you worry at night? You know, maybe things are too important. There is a verse in Scripture. Let me, I'm not, I've given it a thousand times. Can I go 1,001? Yeah. Except the Lord build the business. They labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city and the department, the division, the project, or the company. The watchman waketh but in vain. That is Psalm 127, verse 1. It is vain for you to rise up early, to stay up late, to eat the bread of sorrows either day or night. For so he giveth his beloved sleep. That is a wonderful text. Psalm 127, verse 2. There are laborers to build a house. But God must bless their effort for the house to be built. There are watchmen that keep a city, but God must have those watchmen be awake at the right time for that city to be saved. It's all in the hands of God. And it is so much in the hands of God, it is vain for us to rise up early, to stay up late, or to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he giveth his beloved sleep. Thank you, Lord, for saving us from the despair of Solomon. You can... Listen, when it comes time to go to bed, not when you have finished your work. Your work will never be finished this side of heaven. When it is time to go to bed, get down on your knees and tell God it is all in His hands and quote those two verses to Him. Before God Almighty in heaven and the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I have done this hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. And I did it last night. It is the only way to live. And I thank God for the man who told me about those two verses and how they could save my life. Because I am a worry wart like the best of you. Or should I say the worst of you? I love those two. I just gave you, and I've told you before, these are two life-saving verses. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it, and you apply it to anything in your life. You apply it to your family, you apply it to your business. You apply it to your degree. You apply it to anything, your health. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is not depending upon you. And as soon as you can realize it doesn't depend upon me, it depends upon God using me, you can rest. Then it's vain. It's empty and profitless and worthless for you to get up early and to stay up late and to eat the bread of sorrows by worrying about things. For so he gives his beloved sleep. Get down, tell the Lord. Tell the Lord it's all yours. I've made a reasonable effort to do what you expect me to do. The rest is in your hands. I'm going to sleep. Sweet. That's the Bible. Amen. What's a man who doesn't have that kind of a relationship with God and understand God's role in things? He's right here. He is in despair. 
He can't sleep at night because he's worrying about the projects that he's working on and that if he doesn't do enough, they're not going to get done. And if he doesn't do them just right, they're not going to be done in such a way to meet approval of his master. And he's going to get in trouble. He could lose his job. And who's going to feed his family? Come on. Didn't we, didn't our brother read to us from Luke chapter 12 that they don't toil, neither do they spin? And yet Solomon wasn't arrayed as beautiful as a lily of the field. Isn't that wonderful? Oh, that doesn't mean we don't work hard. It doesn't mean we don't make plans for tomorrow that I'm going to work efficiently, but we just go to bed and leave, turn it over to the Lord. The Lord wants us to live that way. You read these verses and you see a man. This is Solomon writing to us. This is David's son. He's messed up. Because he's showing you that if you put your focus on things, it's going to destroy your life. Because the more you think about it, I'm, no be- I'm going to die like a fool. A fool's going to have my stuff. He's going to be tooling around in my car, my chariot, looking at my work, sleeping in my house, drinking out of my goblets. And all, all, the, all the building of these things gauzed me sorrow. All the travail that I went through was a bunch of grief. And I can't even sleep in the night worrying about all the things. And then who's going to get them when I die? This is pointing out that everything that Hollywood tries to send you by advertisements or by pictures... Or that the lust of your eyes tells your own heart is wrong because things will not make you happy. Only the God of heaven can make you happy. Only the God of heaven can make you happy with the things you have. It is so wonderful to learn what the full Bible has to say about all of this. Because contentment is a choice to be happy with what God has given you. Instead of setting your affection and your heart on something you don't have that you've got to get in order to be happy. See, Solomon is trying to find what will make him happy. So he just keeps building and building and building and building. He says, I didn't keep my heart back from a single thing. If an idea popped into his head, he just said, do it. And you know what? There were people lined up ready to do it. The bank account didn't run dry in Solomon's day. Are you kidding? He could do anything he wanted. Your bank account always runs dry. In fact, it's dry right now. So is mine. You know, we can't even get started. He did it all for us. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for giving us an example. Will we humble ourselves before these inspired words given to us by a king and trust them? Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Asaph would say, whom have I in heaven beside thee? There is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. My flesh and my heart faileth like this, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor the wise man in his wisdom, nor the rich man in his riches. Let him glory in the fact that he knoweth and understandeth me, that I am the Lord, which exercise loving kindness, righteousness, and judgment in the earth. Godliness with contentment is great gain was read to us this morning from 1 Timothy 6.6. That's the answer to all of this despair. They called it the fast track in a business environment. Were you going to get in the fast track? That is the career progression plan of very fast advancements for you to have a greater job working in some big company. Oh, give me the fast track to heaven. We once had a men's meeting about the fast track. It's the fast track to walking with God that's so much more important than the fast track with any job on earth. 
Oh, to walk with God every day is so much more important than being a wunderkin. That's another term. It's a German expression for a wonder boy that is able to advance very quickly in a job. It's a wunderkin. No, let's be a wunderkin with God in heaven. Let's be someone that he delights in. You know, the Lord said of David, he was a man after his own heart. Let that be the goal of our souls. Because then, when that's first in first place, then all of a sudden you can be content with the things that you have, and it's the best of all worlds. It is godliness plus contentment equals great gain. Brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, godliness, walking with God every day, plus being content with you have what with what you have, no matter what that is, equals great gain. The world tells us godliness they don't know anything about. Contentment, oh no. You need to be driven. Driven plus success equals great gain. But the Bible says godliness plus contentment equals great gain. Lord help us to learn the lesson. Amen. Help us. Our flesh doesn't want to accept the lesson because the pride of life wants to aim higher than that. But it's not higher. It's lower. It's self-destruction. All his days are sorrows and his travail grief. Yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity. This also is vanity and a great evil. This is also vanity. He said it three times in those six verses that we just covered. Last lesson of chapter 2 is in verses 24 through 26. There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw that it was from the hand of God. For who can eat or who else can hasten hereunto more than I? For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner he giveth travail to gather and to heap up that he may give to him that is good before God. This also is vanity and vexation of spirit. There is a contrast being drawn in three, these three verses that we must grasp. When he says, eat, there is nothing better for a man that he should eat, drink, and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. He is talking about under the sun, but he is talking about putting it in its proper place under God. He describes it as a gift from God. He describes it as different from the sinner's approach, which is travail and heaping up things. Rather than being content with moderation in moderate things, the contrast is a sinner who is in travail, doing just what the previous part of the chapter had described, pursuing happiness in things and not achieving it. And he's, he's letting out a secret that is also vanity and vexation of spirit for that poor sinner. You know what the vanity and vexation of spirit is for the poor sinner? He works his whole life to pile it all up so that God can take it and give it to a righteous man after he's dead. <laughs> Did you know how much wealth that Egypt piled up? Egypt piled it, piled it up until they were known as the greatest kingdom on earth at the time of Moses. Egypt was the wealthiest nation on earth. Guess where all their wealth went? They shoved it in the pockets, in the wagons, and in the bags of the Israelites as they left Egypt to go into the land of Canaan. They robbed the nation, but they didn't have to rob it. They gave their wealth away. The nation was destroyed 
They had, they had lived their lives in travail. Ever read about their building projects of all those pyramids and everything else they did? And God gave it to the righteous, to the nation of Israel. There is nothing better for a man. Now we're talking about under the sun. Then what do you do? If labor is so sorrowful, and if there is so much grief and travail, and if you can't sleep at night, then what should be the approach that we take? It's in these three verses. There's nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink, and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. Stop worrying. Trust moderation. Be content. And look at it as a gift from God to have these simple pleasures each day and to put them in their proper place and to thank God for the ability to enjoy them and not be so stressed out that all you're worrying about is tomorrow. This also I saw that it was from the hand of God because it is unusual upon earth. It is unusual for a man to be able to be content and to enjoy each day's progress and trust the Lord for the rest. This is a man who is not eating the bread of sorrow. He's eating some of the bread he earned with the sweat of his brow and thanking God for it. And he's washing it down with a glass of wine and thanking God for that. And he thanks the Lord and he blesses the Lord and he goes to bed and he, he, he reads Psalm 127 verses 1 and 2 and he sleeps contentedly. There is another man that is put in contrast here. He's already been put in contrast by the first 23 verses. And there's a man that's in contrast by the last half of verse 26. And that's the sinner who lives his whole life in travail and sorrow to heap up things. Because he doesn't put God first. He doesn't believe in moderation. He doesn't choose contentment. So we go to work every day. We work diligently, eight, nine, ten hours, whatever we need to do on a reasonable basis to do our job, and we trust the Lord for the rest. Amen. By working 12 or 14, you are not going to accomplish what you need to to be successful. If you want to be successful, then you work eight, nine, ten, or something reasonable like that, and trust the Lord for the rest. Because except the Lord build the house, or the Lord bless the hours, you labor in vain. So you do a reasonable best and turn it over to the Lord. Come home, enjoy a meal with your family. Enjoy your wife, enjoy your children. Take a walk in your yard. In moderation, contentment, and a choice to keep it in its proper place. Sinners can't do that. They are driven. I have got to get ahead of my neighbor. I have got to accumulate more. I have got to rise faster. You want to rise? Then be a Joseph. You think you know about the fast track? Joseph knew about the fast track by experience. Do you know how he got started? He got sold into slavery. Then things went from bad to worse. He got accused of rape and convicted and went to prison. But when you put the Lord first, he'll take care of all that. Did Joseph put the Lord first? And the Lord was with him. And the Lord was with him. And the Lord was with him, the Bible tells us, over and over. How about Daniel? Have some outpatient surgery, be turned into a unit, hauled off 700 miles to the kingdom of Babylon. Did he do okay? Amen. Did he put the Lord first? In chapter 1 of the book of Daniel, did he put the Lord first? David Jones. David Jones. Did Daniel put the Lord first? Good. You talk, you talk to me at break time about Daniel. I thought you were still worked up about him. <laughs> we had a great conversation at break time. He brought his Bible over to me and said, let me show you something. 
Okay. He did. Daniel chapter 6. He wanted to tell me all about Daniel and lion's den. Did Daniel do okay? Amen. How about being next to Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar and Cyrus and Darius? That's not bad. How about Esther? Did she do okay? She put her trust in the Lord. How about Mordecai? Did he do okay? Put his trust in the Lord. How about David? Did he do okay? Even when Saul was trying to kill him, did he do okay? That's... That's the proper order. That's the proper place for things. There's nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy goodness labor because your soul doesn't want to do it by nature because your soul wants to worry. Your soul wants to worry about your children. Your soul wants to worry about your grandchildren. Your soul wants to worry about everything. Well, if I, I just need to do some more. I just need to do some more. No, do a little bit less and turn it over to the Lord and he'll do that. It's the, it's the only way to live. It's the blessed way to live. If you think to yourself that eating and drinking in moderation and, and contentment can't be enough, I need to do more than that. Solomon says in verse 25, who can eat or who else can hasten hereunto more than I? I already tried the excess you wish you could try. The excess doesn't work. I've just taught you that in chapter 2. Therefore, the conclusion is God gives some men a gift. And who does he give it to? God giveth to a man that is good. In his sight, wisdom and knowledge and joy. The opposite of sorrow, the opposite of travail, the opposite of grief. God giveth to a man that is good in his sight. Do you know what comes first in our lives? This is one of those places where he cheats and lets out his conclusion a little early. A man that is good in the sight of God is a man that fears God and keeps his commandments. Right. That's a man that is good in the sight of God. And a man that fears God and keeps his commandments, God gives him the gift to be able to have contentment, peace, joy, wisdom, eat, drink, and enjoy the fruit of his labor in its proper place. Because notice the order. Good in the sight of God, God gives him a benefit, and that benefit is to be able to enjoy the moderation and contentment of the good things of life. But then there's this, his neighbor next door doesn't put God first, doesn't keep his commandments. He works himself raw every day. He can't sleep at night. He works overtime every single day, all the time worried about wanting to get ahead, get ahead, get ahead. Then that man dies, and the Lord, in one way or another, has his position given to the man that is good in his sight, who went to bed every night and turned the things over to the Lord. I hope I've made Ecclesiastes 2 clear enough to your hearts and minds that you can be saved from what the pride of life and the lust of the eyes says inside and what the world tells us on the outside. May the Lord bless us to love moderation, to love contentment, to love putting the Lord first and let him take care of the details and to give up on sorrow, grief, and travail because they don't accomplish a thing. They just destroy our marriages, our homes, and our own souls. They cause us to despair of life. They cause us to hate life. When there's good things to enjoy every day, praise the Lord. He's the great thing, the great object of joy of all, but he's also given us many other things to enjoy. Yea, 1 Timothy 6.17 says that he hath given us richly all things to enjoy. And that is in the New Testament. But that comes after a man being good because that same text says, Charge them that are rich that they trust not 
in their uncertain riches, but in the living God that giveth us those things to enjoy as a gift. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.